We're going to pray a second time here in a moment, um, maybe a, f- a few minutes into the message time, uh, just because of, of the subject matter that we're dealing with. We definitely need God and His mercy uh, to speak to us here today. Um, last week, we began a 15 to 18 year long sermon series called Summers in the Psalms. So every summer, if you come back to this place, you'll be seeing us in the Psalms once again. And we appropriately started in Psalm 1, and notice that the first word in Psalm 1 is that word blessed or happy. Um, Ashrei haish is what it says in the Hebrew. Happy is the man who. And I, I thought about that. I was like, man, aren't we all trying to answer that question? Aren't we all seeking to find out the answer to that question? What a way to start a book, right? Happy is the man who, then you got to fill in that blank. And I, I mentioned that this is a fascinating way to open up a book. We're all looking to find that calm, that eased contentment, that happiness, to not be threatened by the many hardships that come our way, like our leaves will not wither or perish, is what it says in Psalm 1. So the book of Psalms opens, and it shows us that that way of living is actually possible. But it's a way of righteousness. And in order to possess this happiness, you have to be righteous. And the problem is, is that none of us have this righteousness in and of ourselves. Many of us, probably all of us, has repeatedly tried and tried and tried and tried again to attain some sense of righteousness, but we always fail and we can never really truly make ourselves righteous, especially after we do wrong things and accumulate real guilt. So we need a righteousness. If you're seeking after that happiness, that calm and that ease and contentment way of life and that's only accessible through righteousness, we need a righteousness that's foreign from us to be given to us. And in the fullness of time, that is exactly what Jesus came and accomplished for us and then gave to us when we cried out to him, proving that God himself is indeed rich in mercy. He was willing to give us that righteousness freely at the cost of his own son. And so last week we studied Psalm 1 and we saw that there are really two options for us. Remember, we did that optometry thing. One, two, one, two. Here's your two options. There's no third option. We can either be associated with the righteous one or we can walk in the way of the wicked who are going to be cursed. One, two, one, two. No third option. And last week we cracked open the text that we're going to preach today, and we're going to see that when we looked at Psalm 2, that the righteous man talked about in Psalm 1 was really the begotten Son of God who was enthroned as the anointed king of Psalm 2. And at the very end of verse 12, we were told this in Psalm 2, 12, blessed or happy, ease and contented are all those who take refuge in him. So the only way that we can experience true happiness that stems from being truly righteous is if we take refuge in him who is the only righteous one. It's the exclusive way. It's the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And the only way that we can experience that true happiness is by finding refuge in him. And so in a moment, 
We're going to give ourselves to reading our text today, the, the, the entirety of Psalm 2, even though we just peeked in it last week. And as we do, we need to have this question parading across our minds. Here's the question. Listen. Why would we need to take refuge in him? What is so threatening to us that we need to seek shelter from? What is endangering us? What risk or peril are we in if we are not refu- finding refuge in him? Those, those are the questions like, why do I need to go to him? And well, what we're going to see when we read this verse or these verses in Psalm 2 What we need to seek refuge, why we need to seek refuge in him is because we need to receive refuge from him. Psalm 2 is going to tell us that if we don't seek refuge in him, then we will be destroyed by him. So once again, two options. You either fall under his protection or you will be consumed by his destruction. One, two. Choose. No third option. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So if the binary way of talking last week was meant to sober you up a bit and help you make a decision, this week I need to warn you that there is some verbiage in this passage that is by design to terrify you. There's words in this psalm that by design are put into this passage so that once you hear them, you cannot unhear them. They'll get under your skin. They will haunt you. What you hear today from Psalm 2 is by design meant to upset you to the point that you make a decision that will save you from the destruction that's coming your way. One, two. Seek refuge in him or be destroyed by him. And so as we talk about what this passage is presenting today, we need God's mercy-giving presence of his Holy Spirit to do the work of proper conviction so that we may respond appropriately. So let's pray once again. Oh God, we're only a few minutes into this, and I haven't even read the passage yet, and I, I approach it with, with uh, really with fear and trembling, knowing what's in here, having studied it for weeks now. And then being called to deliver it, there is, like Jeremiah said, a fire in my bones today. Eager to share the subject matter that needs to be shared so that we can all be appropriately, reverently seeing who you truly are. And so we ask that you would work in this time. God, I pray that this would be a sobering time, 
that these words would pierce our ears and more than that, pierce our hearts and that we would not be able to unhear them and that everyone with an earshot of this message would have their hearts affected by the content of this message, which is not mine, it's yours. And so, God, we give ourselves to this passage. We give ourselves to what you would have for us. And we pray that you'd be so gracious and so merciful in allowing proper conviction to come about so that we can respond appropriately to what this text is saying. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look at Psalm 2 together. The words will be on the screen and you have a copy of the scriptures yourself. This is what Psalm 2 says. Remember, Psalm 1 and 2 are connected. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May the Lord add his blessing to those who read and hear and then seek to obey what this word is saying to us today. What we see in verses 1 through 3 is really an atrocity. What we see in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 2 is atrocious. It's an atrocity. And this is a carefully selected word. And the reason it fits with these verses is because it means something that is out, just outrageous. Like almost unthinkable. Why would you do that? And what we see in verses 1 through 3 is off the charts offensive it actually showcases absurdity and stupidity. Look at what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Look at what the collective nations and the individual peoples of those nations, and the kings and the ruling class of those people were doing. They're plotting a way to get out from underneath the rulership 
of the triune, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, eternal God. Good luck with that. These people were overmatched and they were outwitted even before they were created by the Creator. So no wonder the psalmist says that this attempt was an exercise of vanity. Think about this. A being that is all-powerful, everywhere present, all-knowing, and eternally existent cannot be just cast aside and disregarded, nor can he be taken off guard by any of our plots. No matter how hard you try, and no matter how hard you scheme to come up with a perfect plan, you just can't burst that bond. There's no game plan to cast off that type of cord. But that didn't stop the inhabitants of the earth from trying. And that, my friends, is off the charts, offensive, outrageous, absurd, and utter stupidity, and it's an exercise of vanity. And this is a game plan that is sure to fail. You know, the World Cup has started. I don't know if you follow much of it, but I bet there aren't many countries out there that after having their goalie produce a first-half shutout, would go into halftime and say, hey, here's a great idea. Let's, let's have our goalie play striker the second half, right? It'd be foolish. We're halfway through the baseball season, right? Second half of the season, I bet there hasn't been a manager yet to call down to the bullpen, to the pitching coach, say, hey, forget about our all-star closer. Go into the bleachers and grab the vendor throwing peanuts. It looks like he's got a good arm. I want him to come in and pitch the ninth, right? That'd be foolish. It'd be against the rules, Right? Or imagine a situation when your favorite football team was on the one-yard line in the Super Bowl. You had three downs to gain one yard with the MVP caliber running back. <laughs> Score a touchdown. Still too soon? Still. I've used it twice now. I just had to lighten it up a bit. People are shaking their hands at me. People are going to throw rotten fruit. Needless to say, just by crowd reaction, that's an atrocity for the ages. Right? The humans presented in one through three are sinning egregiously. The people were not trying to inquire of the Lord. They were conspiring against him. These people were not delighting in the laws of God like they were told in Psalm 1. They're actually delighting in the thought of being freed from them. The words are this. They wanted to nathok their bonds, and shellac their cords. What that meant is they wanted to take those bonds and tear them apart. They wanted to break them and then stomp on them and then throw the cords as far away as they possibly could throw them. They wanted to then locate where those commands landed so that they could go trample on them. Then they wanted to put them underfoot in a false, fake victory formation way while celebrating their bogus freedom. Then they wanted to bury the commands of God and then dance on the grave of his restraints in a high-handed, middle-finger-to-God type of way. This is the feeling of these verses. Let's get rid of his Fill in the blank with an expletive, bonds. They are detestable to us. This is the picture of humanity in verses 1 through 3. 
Not just the nations, but the peoples too. Not just the ruling class, but all of us. This was our demeanor. This is how we treated God. And you say, well, that was then. What about now? And the portrait that was just painted for us in verses 1 through 3 is actually a self-portrait of what we see in humanity today. If there's any variation, it would be slight and probably even more distorted and offensive. How so? Consider just a few issues that showcase our depravity as it relates to issues of life and morality. For instance, God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with little image bearers of me. And the first man and woman were told to have babies, but we destroy babies. We have done a very good job in being fruitful in conception, but then we slaughter the fruit of conception and abort babies on a massive heart-wrenching scale. And the only multiplication that is taking place is the guilt in people's heart who have participated in the procedure. And instead of experiencing joy and life and fulfillment, there's only guilt, shame, and regret. There have been world leaders that have created legislation that limited the number of children that could be brought into the world. While other world leaders have intentionally attempted to control and reduce the population. What is happening is saying, we don't want, we don't care about your purposes, God, away with them. Our defiant foolishness is on display when we fail to recognize the binary way in which God created humans. The prophet Isaiah warned long ago about redefining what God had clearly defined. Isaiah was led to write this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You cannot just redefine what God has created without consequence, but we shake our fists at heaven and we defy his logic and we try to redefine what he has defined from the very beginning, like marriage. Think about this. We dissolve what were to be lifelong vows taken before God and civil authorities and family and friends, and we sometimes quickly walk away from our marriages when things get hard in some sort of vain pursuit or some sort of far-fetched fulfillment that will never come to fruition. We distort God's good intentions with sex and engage in self-worship while staring at images and videos of inappropriate things for hours on our smartphones and screens, and we become enslaved with an unquenchable desire for more. And we distort God's goodness in a good gift. We march under flags that are marked with the symbol of God's covenant of grace that he mercifully made with humanity and that we drag it through the mud and raise defiant fists and exchange that which is natural for that which is unnatural and we call it pride. Pride. 
and we shake our fists at heaven and we put up a middle finger to the sky. And the atrocity that we see in verses 1 through 3 is what we see played out in the headlines every day and in our very own lives when we choose to dethrone God and his anointed one from his rightful throne. This isn't just for out there. This is for here. This is who I'm human. This is the portrait of me. So if you look at those verses again, they say, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Humans have cast away Almighty God in attempts to become omni ourselves. We worship advancement and innovation and technology, and we audition for the role of God. Think about this. We collectively combine our efforts together to become omnipotent, that is, to be all-powerful. I was reading one secular author this last week who says this, Power is the ability of individuals or groups to shape events. Technology is the practical application of scientific knowledge and the invention and use of devices to improve human performance. New technologies change economies, markets, cultures by creating new opportunities. While some have a growing fear of technological change, technology remains the best source of continued economic growth and military strength. It's all up to us and what we can invent. That's our best opportunity for preservation is what we can do with our technology. We attempt to be omnipresent and omniscient. With our satellite images, security cameras, body cam footage, live webcams, nothing is secret, nothing hidden, just check the footage, just roll the tape, and we'll figure it out. Have you ever been puzzled and you don't know an answer to the question? No worries, just Google it. We don't need to think for ourselves at all. There's algorithms that will do that for us. And we now even have the ability to replace our reasonable, logical, and critical thinking with artificial intelligence that can produce original and creative content that is sourced in an extensive, bordering on exhaustive database. And it's actually really amazing, but very threatening, and will more than likely lead to judgment. We don't need you. We don't need the the way that you've created humans to be. We don't need that, God. Humans are attempting to be eternal. Humans are trying to cast off that ancient mechanism called death through the process of cryogenics. Attempts are being made to preserve remains until a future time when technology might advance far enough to revive and then sustain life. And there are ambitious people who aspire to create a way to upload consciousness to some sort of avatar so that it might gain sentience. If it sounds like a sci-fi novel, you're right. These are things that are being attempted and being made and being invested in. Humanity is trying to collectively burst off the bond of death and cut the constraint of having been appointed to die once and then face judgment. And as this is being done, there's a failure to realize that God graciously allowed death to enter into the creation itself so that humans wouldn't have to live in a fallen state forever. 
and God himself in the second person of the Trinity became obedient to death in order to redeem us as a fallen race. And Paul writes to the Romans this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? But we say, God, we don't want your blasted provisions. We would rather vainly attempt to become omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and eternal without any help from you, God. Genesis 11 tells the story of humans who banded together and settled on the plains of Shinar instead of obeying God's commands to spread throughout the earth. So from the beginning of our holy book, we read this story. These innovative humans developed technology to make bricks and then to harden them so they could construct a tower that could reach the heavens so they, they could make a name for themselves and be freed from the commands and the constraints of God. These humans were trying to steal God's glory, but God will not share his glory. Rather, the story ends with God proving his dominance. And so in a comical fashion, the only way that God was even able to see the tower that was being constructed, we read in Genesis 11:5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man have built. It's, it's, it's hilarious when you read it. Everything in the passage is like, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to make this power bigger, 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 and it's going to be really high. And then in order for God just to see it, he's got to like, look down. For God to see the tall tower that was supposed to be able to crack the firmament and reach the heavens, he had to come down to see it. And with one word from his mouth, he confused all their words in judgment, and they were forced to bow to his will and disperse from each other, and God's will was done. The account is tragic, it's also laughable, and at the same time, we see God's dominance. Because this is what happens. You see, God will always respond to atrocity. And that's what we see next in verses 4 through 9. God will always respond to atrocity. And how does he respond? He responds by executing judgment. And by executing judgment, he actually proves himself to be God. Look at these verses and tremble. Verses 4 through 9. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is in reference to Jesus. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Have you ever seen one of those comics or those cartoons where two characters kind of get in a scuffle and the smaller one starts wildly swinging their fists at the bigger one who's easily restraining them at their forehead at arm's length? You ever seen that one? It's just kind of like a classic cartoon thing. That's really what's happening here. Look at verse 4. It says, 
in response to collective humans' efforts to say, let's burst off their bonds and cast off their cords, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And he holds them in derision. Verse 4 depicts God as sitting and laughing. He's not depicted as exerting any energy defending himself. The only energy exerted is his enjoyment. He's laughing while he's holding the angry, scoffing humans in derision. That means he's poking fun at them and making a mockery of them. These people are overmatched and they're outwitted by the one who rules the heavens. And that's verse 4, but when we get to verse 5, it is absolutely no laughing matter. Because the verbiage here is awful. That, when I studied this, I was like, these words are awful words. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury, saying. These words are here by design to shake you up. They show us that appropriate judgment is not out of character for our God. Those that make themselves out to be God's enemy are subject to his judgment, which will lead to their destruction. Have you ever been to a restaurant and that was asked by the waiter or the waitress, or you asked them if they had any suggestions on the menu? After all, they're the ones that serve the food, and they've been there. In this verse, God presents himself as the waiter, and he says to us, why not, for an appetizer, start with a steamy bowl of my wrath? Follow it up with a main course of being terrified and wash it all down with a giant frothing mug of my fury. We would say, are there any other suggestions? Because no one in their right mind, listen, in their right mind, would be inclined to order this. And yet, sadly, that is what we are ordering and willing to pay the price for by our defiant sins. We're well over halfway through this message, and, and, and we need to grasp the reality of what these verses are saying here. Wrath and terror infusing, infusing fury. Those are the words in this verse. This is the wrath that we read about in Revelation that will be served by King Jesus when he comes again. The people receiving this wrath would rather have mountains and rocks fall on them than face the wrath of the Lamb. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. We were just up at Baker last week, and it's a really big mountain. If Mount Baker were dropped on you, you and I would be done for, but it would be more preferable than facing the wrath of the king of heaven. Look at what Revelation 6 says. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone. Don't just think about rich ruling class or, or leadership. This says everyone, slave and free, 
All of them hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Why? Well, they were hiding themselves and calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come. Who can stand? Throw a mountain on me. Throw a mountain on me? Yeah, that's better. You can't unhear that. That's strange to hear that. But we're talking about wrath and terror. That word terror means to be disturbed and alarmed, to be taken off guard. It's an all-of-a-sudden type of danger that you weren't prepared for, like when you're suddenly awakened by your alarm clock with the volume set to 10. Like, oh my goodness, I wasn't ready. It's shocking, sudden, wrath, terror, and fury. Fury is a fierce and fervent heat. Have you ever been, a really, been around a really hot campfire and you felt your face start to radiate? If you have, you've had to like shield your face or look away because you probably tried to like protect yourself. From the, I, I can start to feel it right here and it's uncomfortable. But the picture in Psalm 2 and in Revelation 6 is that the source of the heat and the fury is coming from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And you can't move away from him. In fact, he's actually coming after you. And you can't outrun him. He's coming after you for judgment. And in Psalm 2 verse 9 it says this, He will break you. He will break them with a rod of iron and he will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is what Jesus, listen, is Jesus, this is what he is appointed to do. This might be a, a Jesus you've never heard of before. But this is, he is appointed to destroy all who are opposed to God. This is what Jesus is appointed to do when he comes back. He will break people and he will dash them to pieces. You know, it seems that everywhere I look these days, I'm reading about articles about the existential threat to humanity for this or that. Everything seems to be posing as some sort of existential threat, whether it's being artificial intelligence or global warming or nuclear war, the only real existential threat to humanity is the one that we decided to crucify and nail to a wooden post. He's the one ruling everything, and he is appointed to come back and set it all straight. And he died, and he was buried. He was raised on the third day and he ascended to the right hand of God and is now awaiting his father's command to come back. And when he comes back, this is what he'll do. He'll come back to grant relief to those of us who 
are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And we who have relied on his righteousness, instead of trying to come up with our righteousness on our own, we will hear his announcement in the second to last recorded words in our holy book where he says, surely I am coming soon. And we say to that, amen, come Lord Jesus. Because he will bring the relief that we've all been longing for. Option one. Option two, as Paul continues on in the same paragraph to 2 Thessalonians, for those who have decided to burst his bonds and cast off his cords, it's a different story. Because when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, he will be revealed in a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and all those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. People, he is the only real existential threat to humanity. The world is trying to come up with policies and legislation, all sorts of stuff to deal with real problems, this is the real problem that nobody in government can take care of. It's you who needs to take care of it. You need to respond. He's coming back, and when he comes back, he will be slamming down a gavel of justice while he unsheathes and swings his double-edged sword at those whom he has kept at arm's length while they wildly swung their fist at him throughout the duration of their lives. And when he comes back, he will be clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The blood on his robe is not from his own crucifixion here. It will belong to those that he is appointed to destroy and dash to pieces. And his return will be like lightning in the skies, sudden, unavoidable, and charged with power. He is the only real existential threat to humanity and he will come back and his return will be inescapable and guess what? He's on record of saying, I'm coming soon. So the only response to this news is to repent (laughs) and to turn from our sins and to turn toward the appointed king before he comes to judge the living and the dead. His return will demonstrate that he rules the world with truth and grace and he will make the nations prove the glories of what? His righteousness, as the Christmas carol says. He will bring his justice and his righteousness and he will bless those who have hungered and thirsted for righteousness. They will be satisfied. And so the sobering psalm ends with a sober warning and an invitation in verses 10 through 12. Don't remain in despair. Hear the warning and respond appropriately. Here's the warning and here's the invitation. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. These these things should cause us to tremble a bit. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Here's the message. Be wise, be warned. None of us should sleep on this message. You must respond today to the message. 
Today, if you hear his voice and you feel his promptings, don't harden your heart towards him. Soften them. Those are your only options. One, two, you choose. And depending on what you do with Jesus, you will either face his fury or you will face his favor. This is what it says. Kiss the son. Kiss him. In the cultural context of that day, that meant for an inferior to willfully acknowledge the superiority of another. The kiss was a joy-filled, humble expression of admission that the one being kissed is superior to the one doing the kissing. And in our case, we must willfully and joyfully submit to and obey God's anointed King Jesus. We must pay him the respect and the honor and the homage that he deserves while joyfully serving him. I can't believe that I get mercy from you. We're blessed if we take refuge in him. If, which is a way better option than being cursed by him and getting what our sins truly deserve. So here it is. We better sober up before Jesus shows up because there is no refuge from him. It is only found in him. Let's pray. God, I completely acknowledge that this is heavy. Honestly, it's probably foreign to many of our ears and our listening and our understanding of who you are because it is a hard message. But it's a truth-filled message. It's something that we can't escape from. We have to work our way through the text and see what the text says and then respond appropriately to it. So God, in these last moments, I pray that you would help us do that work of response in an appropriate way. That instead of running from you and trying to burst your bonds and cast off your cords, that we would run to you, recognizing that you stand up and say, come to me, all of you who are thirsty and in need, and I will give you rest. And so God, I pray that we would respond rightly and run to you instead of away from you. So God, in this last musical worship segment, God, I pray that you would work on all of our hearts and that if there's any promptings, any stirring in our inner being, that we would recognize that it is your very Holy Spirit who's doing that work and that we would come to you instead of running away. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand as we sing.